Voice of Islam Radio Writings of the Promised Messiah Then arise and repent and win the pleasure of God through good works. Remember that the punishment of wrong beliefs is after death. Being a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim will be determined on the day of judgment. But a person who goes beyond the limit and wrongdoing Transgression, disobedience, and vice is punished in this life. Such a one cannot escape God's chastisement. So hasten to win God's pleasure, and before the dreadful day arrives, namely the day of intensity, of the plague of which the prophets have warned, make your peace with God. He is very benevolent. To the one moment of the repentance that melts the heart, He can forgive the sins spread over 70 years. Do not say that repentance is not accepted. Remember that you cannot be saved by your deeds. It is grace that saves and not deeds. Benevolent and merciful Lord, bestow thy grace upon all of us. We are thy servants and have fallen down upon thy threshold. Amen. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 21st of November 2022. The time is 7.05 a.m. and you're listening to live broadcast from uh, Southland Studios of Voice of Islam. And your host is Daniel Zia. As uh, is the norm, we'll start off with the headlines appearing uh, in the newspapers uh, this morning. Uh, but before that, uh, the two topics that uh, we shall be talking about today. Uh, so the first one is about um, uh, men's health. So this being the month of November or Movember, as it is known. Um, 
uh, uh, because of the um, uh, the focus on men's health in this month. So that's the topic uh, that we shall discuss starting at uh, 7.30 a.m. And then uh, from 8.15 a.m. onwards, we shall talk about uh, migrant workers and um, uh, the difficulties that they go through um, uh, in, in various countries around the world. So those are the two topics uh, that we shall be talking about. Please do call us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right. Off to the um, headlines in the newspapers um, uh, this morning. Um so the um, most of the newspapers um, uh, this morning um, uh, carry or talk about the upcoming um, football or, or the ongoing football World Cup, uh, I should say. So England captain Harry Kane poses proudly with uh, St. George's Cross on the front of many pages as Gareth Southgate's squad are finally set to get their tournament underway against Iran on Monday afternoon. In the Daily Express, a striker rose to put a smile on people's faces when the lead story quotes senior Tories describing the prospect of a softer, Swiss-style version of Brexit as absurd. Lions of Arabia, the sun puns with the same photo of defiant Kane. The tabloid says the Spurs captain rose to lift the nation and end 56 years of World Cup hurt for English fans. A humbling for... Qatar writes The Guardian, accompanied by a photo of empty seats during the second half of the Qatar versus Ecuador opening match. A photo of uh, comedians Frank Skinner and David Badiol catches the eye in the corner as the pair insist their famous three-line song is about losing while the lead story centers on the climate deal struck in Egypt early on Sunday morning. The Daily Star likens Kane to Superman as he aims to lift the nation by going all the way in Qatar, while the paper also features another England legend, Jill Scott, sharing a story in I Am a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Hair Jungle in Australia. Jubilant Ecuador fans are pictured on the front of the eye after Qatar were soundly beaten by South American nation. Sir Rod Stewart features on the side of the front page as the paper reviews the rock legend. The lead story centers on Tory MPs warning against reports of a Swiss-style trading relationship with the European Union. The government has categorically denied that the model is an option. The Daily Mail asks whether Harry Kane will be booked for wearing a rainbow armband as he prepares to lead England in the opening game against Iran. The splash story focuses on some Tory MPs warning Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt not to betray them on Brexit. The Metro leads on comedian Joe Lisset, um, Joe Lisset, I should say, apparently burning £10,000 in cash to protest David Beckham's role as an ambassador for the Qatar World Cup with the headline weighed a waste. The paper says the protest sparked a storm as the TV host turned air defenders and a rainbow tull as he live-streamed himself, himself pouring notes into a wood chipper. Another triumphant image of Ecuador player, players applauding their fans featured on the front of the Financial Times as it says in its lead that the COP27 climate summit ended in discord as Saudi Arabia and Russia put up staunch resistance to upping the pace of curbing fossil fuels. 
Moving away from the World Cup briefly, the Times splashes on a story about NHS patients facing long waiting times for ambulances and any care as ministers accept there is little hope of hitting key targets by the next general election. Back to football and broadcaster Des Lydum's famous shouldn't you be at work remark from the 1998 World Cup intros, an article on millions of English fans working and watching from home. And finally, more warnings from Tory Eurosceptics in the Daily Telegraph as they urge the government not to strike a Swiss-style deal with the EU. However, the paper leads with figures suggesting that hundreds more people than expected are now dying of cancer each month in England after missed diagnosis in the COVID pandemic. So that was the uh, a quick roundup of the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. We shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue discussing um, what's appearing um, in some other newspapers and some other uh, important news items. A reminder of the two topics that we shall uh, discuss this morning. So the first one is about uh, importance of men's health, this being the month of uh, November. And then we shall uh, put some focus starting 8th. 15 a.m. Um, on the treatment of mi- migrant workers across the globe and the difficulties that they go through. So those are the two topics. The number to call is 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And we shall be back right after this quick break. Voice of Islam Radio. Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. Al-Latif is one who illuminates hearts, 
who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see Him. He is Al-Latif. He is unseen and illuminates the person He reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for Him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek Him and raises prophets to be their guide to Him. His light is manifested through His prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, disseminated this light the most for it was He who had the most perfect perception of God, and it was He who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of His perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of His servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is He who fills hearts with His magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Azrat Mirza Majroor Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian 
a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate, the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the holy founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, continues the work of the holy founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Your interpretation of jihad has always been in stark contrast to the extremist imams that we all deplore. We especially applaud His Holiness for denouncing those who pervert faith by claiming it as a justification for violence. However we define God, it is wrong to kill in His name. I have enormous admiration and respect for the work that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community are doing throughout the world to promote peace and understanding, not just by words, but by an example of a way of life, an example of impeccable conduct, and an example of undeniable faith in God Almighty, and an example of peace and tolerance. I only wish that more people could be here today to see this face of Islam, to understand this community's expression of that great religion, and I hope that for the future you will be recognized as the face of Islam, of love, of tolerance, of brotherhood and friendship. The work that you do in the community contributes every day towards that. Let us hope that everyone else's eyes are opened to the truth, to the justice, and to the compassion that you bring to our society. His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the present head of the community, continues in his effort to unite people from all faiths and cultures by promoting interfaith dialogue and religious freedom. He has traveled extensively to spread the message of peace and to remind everyone to respect the rights of other human beings. During these tours, His Holiness has met world leaders from the Far East to Europe, from North America to Africa, discussing the economic, social and political problems facing the world today and how to create peace and justice in the world. He has also met religious and community leaders in order to share common values and core ideals universal to all religions and cultures with a view to improving the moral state of mankind and creating an atmosphere of love and affection. From young to old, he compassionately listens to the ordinary man, regardless of race, color or religion. He has personally initiated social projects and schemes to alleviate poverty and human suffering. His concern is not just about the well-being and moral state of the members of the Ahmadiyya community, but of the great human suffering of mankind at large. The Ahmadiyya community knows only that Islam, which is the Islam of love and affection, offers a real message of peace and security. It is a pleasure to be associated 
with an organization, with a religion that says love for all, hate for none. And I think if we reflect on that, really that is what we all ought to be doing in the world today. The Ahmadiyya movement in Islam has been a leader in promoting peace and partnership between communities. Established in 190 countries, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community continues to preach a message of peace and tolerance even in parts of the world that persecute them for their beliefs. But this should, ladies and gentlemen, come as a surprise to no one, to anyone who knows this community. Ahmadis are renowned throughout the world for their devotion to peace, universal brotherhood, and the will of God, the core principles of true Islam. Uh, all of us, whatever our political persuasions, hugely admire the work of the Ahmadiyya community here in the United Kingdom as we do across the world. And you are also a beacon because you teach all of us that we will find the solutions to the problems of today through a rediscovery of the spiritual side of our lives as well as the material side. Let us make a resolution. Let us make this resolution to promote the message of peace and brotherhood, which is your message to mankind, that people of different religions should not quarrel and fight with each other, but should accept and tolerate and live together in that spirit of brotherhood and peace, which is the essence of your religion. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are talking about the headlines appearing in the newspapers uh, this morning. And... Um, one story actually that caught my eye this uh, this morning actually is um, is carried by the Guardian newspaper and it's uh, written by Nina Lakhani and uh, it talks about the um, the COP summit and the um, loss and damage fund that has actually been set up. So. Um, uh, according to the article, in early September, after unprecedented rainfall had left a third of Pakistan underwater, its climate change minister set out uh, the country's stall for COP27. We are on the front line and intend to keep loss and damage and adapt to climate catastrophes at the core of our arguments and negotiations. There will be no moving away from that. Uh, this was according to Sherry Rahman, the climate change minister. Pakistan brought that resolve to the negotiations in Sharm el-Sheikh and as president of the G77 plus China negotiating bloc, succeeded in keeping developing countries united on loss and damage despite efforts by some rich countries to divide them. 
Its chief negotiator, Nabil Munir, a career diplomat, was backed by a team of savvy veteran negotiators who had witnessed the devastation and suffering from the floods, which cost $30 billion, uh, $30 billion or £25 billion pounds of damage and economic losses. Every day, Munir repeated the same message, loss and damage is not charity, it's about climate justice. It was the first time the G77, which includes a diverse range of countries with an array of climate, economic and security challenges, had shown such unity since 2009 when they rejected the Copenhagen Accord at COP15, according to Asad Rahman of the UK charity War on Want. Without the leadership of Pakistan, we couldn't have the outcome, he said. Their diplomats are experienced in maintaining G77 discipline and unity and prevented attempts by the EU and others to turn the least developed countries group and the alliance of small island states against the other countries and accept a narrow fund. Mina Raman, the director of the Third World Network and expert on UN climate summits agreed. We saw attempts to split the G77 with overtures made by the rich countries to the vulnerable 20 in an effort to put pressure on countries like China and India to contribute to the fund. We have seen such divide and control efforts time and again, but when the G77 remains strong, we get good outcomes. If they are divided, developing countries lose, according to Mina Raman. Despite the multitude of disappointments at COP27, failing on loss and damage was not an option, according to Nabil Munir. Our our resolve came after seeing the victims of the catastrophic floods that we faced in Pakistan, he said. The thought that it might not happen came many times that the whole country and the developing world was watching us and we couldn't fail them. So that's... uh, 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 just some excerpts from an article carried by The Guardian this morning. Um, um, actually, it's it's, it's carried by um, a Guardian on Sunday, and it was written by Nina Lakhani. Um, Imam Daniel, anything um, that you found interesting uh, this morning and want to share? Uh, yeah, certainly I've found... Uh this article is regarding uh, regarding healthcare. So you know, we know that uh, in recent years, uh, we are facing uh, different challenges regarding healthcare services across the UK. Um, you know, the pressure is really unprecedented. Mm. So uh, I've got an article uh, by James Cook uh, says that. NHS chiefs in Scotland discuss uh, having wealthy pay for treatment. So, uh, the discussion of a two-tier health service is mentioned in a draft minutes of a meeting of uh, NHS Scotland Health Board Chief Executives in September. They also raised the possibility of uh, curtailing some free prescriptions. Uh, Scotland's Health Secretary Hamza Youssef insisted uh, that the NHS would stay publicly owned and publicly uh, publicly operated. He added that health services must always be based on individual patient need and any suggestion that it should be about the ability to pay was abhorrent. The minutes of the meeting seen by the BBC News are marked in confidence not for onward sharing and uh, highlight the degree of uh, official concern about about the sustainability of Scotland's NHS in its present form. 
that includes suggestions uh, that hospitals should change their appetite for risk by aiming to send patients home more quickly and pause the funding of some new drugs. Uh, according to the, to the minutes, uh, the meeting began with an update about recent conversations with NHS Scotland Chief Executive Caroline Lamb. Uh, the group were then advised that they had been given the green light to present what boards feel reform may look like and that areas which were previously not viable options and are uh, now possibilities. Uh, during uh, describing a billion pound hole in the budget, uh, the minutes warn that uh, it is not possible to continue to run the range of programs the NHS currently offers uh, while remaining safe and doing no harm. Um, and they warn that unscheduled care is going to fall over in the near term before planned care falls over. Uh, the minutes are not concerned uh, about uh, an alleged lack of clinical input into, the, into political decision-making, uh, which they say leaves some, leaves some Scottish government suggestions feeling divorced from reality of life and purpose of serving. An analysis by Lisa Summers, uh, who is the health correspondent uh, from Scotland, he says that a uh, growing number of people are already uh, delving into their savings because they cannot stand the anxiety and pain of waiting for the NHS. So, that was the article by James Cook and certainly right. we are in really under pressure in recent years uh, regarding our health care. We are indeed, absolutely. And thank you very much for uh, for sharing that. Right. OK, so um, uh, it's coming up to 7.31 um, and it's time to w- move on to the first topic um, uh, of the day, which is about uh, the importance of men's health. So as we all know, this is the month of November and there is a charity called uh, Movember, which seeks to raise awareness of men's health issues and, and people uh, will usually shave or grow uh, their moustache, which aims to spark a conversation. So um, a little bit uh, more about that. So uh, Movember is an annual event involving the growing uh, of moustaches, as I said, during the month of November to raise awareness of men's um, uh, health issues such as prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and suicide among men. Um, so those are the um, uh, the objectives uh, for uh, for this campaign. Um, it is the only global charity that is Movember, which is focused on solely on men's health. The foundation raises funds to deliver innovative uh, breakthrough research and support programs that enable men to live happier, healthier, and longer lives. Awareness and fundraising activities are run year-round by the foundation with the annual Movember campaign being globally recognized for its fun and disruptive approach to fundraising and getting men to take action for their own health. Um, so what can um, our listeners do to um, uh, to join this movement? Well, they can sign up at Movember.com. That's M-O-V-E-M-B-R-B-E-R.com. Grow and champion uh, mustache for 30 days. Challenge yourself to get physically active and more and get together uh, during the month um, of November um, and uh, raise awareness. 
Also, you can get uh, your friends and family to support um, these efforts as well. Uh, let me now go to um, our first guest um, for this show, um, for this segment, uh, Imam uh, Muhammad Ahmed Khushid, um, who is a missionary in um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Assalamu alaikum. Um, very good morning and warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much, uh, Imam Khushid, for uh, for joining us. So, yeah, we're talking about uh, men's health and the importance of men's um, health and um, and the efforts that this charity, Movember.com, um, puts and uh, puts a spotlight really in the month of November on men's health. Uh, but really, this is this is something that um, uh, we all need to be focused on. Um, um, all year round, so I wanted to ask you, um, what uh, what what's the Islamic um, angle towards, um, uh, or, or is there any um, uh, any uh, emphasis in Islam on fit, physical fitness, um, on taking care of yourself and taking care of your health? Jazakallah for that. I think it's people often forget that any religion, and in this instance, Islam, we cannot just emphasize on one aspect of our needs, for Mm. example, worship. It has to be assisted by other means. For example, there is a saying of the Prophet, peace be upon him, that a weak, that a strong believer is better than a weak believer, although they're both excellent and good. It doesn't mean one is better than the other, it just means that one is able to accomplish more than the other. So, there's a heavy emphasis in Islam that physical excellence should be should once you try to attain it. Mm. And this brings me to one saying of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him. And he wrote in one of his sayings that the the fact that in schools and in colleges students and the, the, the you know the, the participants are made to go through physical exercise is not to sort of put them through pain or to train them to fight. He explains that it's only for our body parts which require movement, that if they are left without any activity, their strength and abilities will weaken and go to waste. So that's an excellent point. Mm. So if you don't utilize those body parts, uh, over time what happens is that those muscles get weaker and we cannot make them function in the best of, in the best of ways. So for example, when we go to the gym, uh, we, we need time and energy, and then after soreness, that muscle builds and grows as a result. So the fact that at schools, they start from a very early age in PE and physical exercise and, uh, and training classes, it goes to show that there's a greater purpose to that. And in Islam, we believe in the same thing. In fact, when we go back to the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, it is narrated that he used to encourage fathers to take their children to and train them, teach them to swim, for example, for archery, for horse riding. These are very, um, uh, these aren't ex- easy exercises. They require a lot of skill, they require mm. a lot of dedication, time, effort. And there are so many narrations that the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, in times of war, in, when engaged in war, that's very physically taxing to be, to be walking around for hours on end, and sure. to be engaging in battle, for example. And the companions would say that when we couldn't find Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, we used to find him in the in where the battle was at its fair, fair, fiercest. Mm. 
and we used to find him there. And it's, it's so impressive, the fact that he was able to do that. Um, um, you know, it shows that their physical excellence was seen uh, even amongst, you know, Muslims 1,500 years ago. Right. And also, when we look back at our times, just as a personal example, when we were in, studying to become imams in Jamia, it's oh. a seven-year course. And apart from the curriculum studying throughout the day, the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he told all the trainees to, to go and exercise for 90 minutes every day. Right. 90 minutes, whether it's football, um, basketball, any game that were, you know any trainee wants, we had to go through that exercise. And looking back, that was probably just as important as the, um, uh, the studies because that kept us on track with the studies. We used to look forward to it and then that used to refresh us in, in a way. And these habits over seven years have sort of stuck with the, the missionaries who have graduated. So that, you know, there's not one angle to it. There's hmm. great excellence, there's great benefits to exercise in Islam. Are there any examples from the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you mentioned Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, um, from his life uh, uh, stressing the, uh, the importance of uh, physical activity? There are multiple examples that I can give. But he was a he was an avid walker, hmm. especially after the morning prayer. Right. He used to go for long walks, and not just long walks where, you know, he was walking at a very slow pace. He used to do a brisk walk, and the companions who were with him they almost had to do a slow jog to stay with him, and they they couldn't really converse. So you know, when you're walking at a rapid pace, you go out of breath. You're not able to communicate and talk. So they, they would struggle to ask him questions, but the Prophet, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he, he was walking on such a fast and a brisk uh, paced walk. So it goes to show that the first thing he did after prayer and after the recitation of the Quran, he would go for these walks. So you can see the combination there, that worship straight, uh, which was followed by uh, was, uh, not just any physical exercise, this was actually quite strenuous to go through you know, miles. It is narrated that he would go for miles, not just you know for half an hour or so, he would go for miles upon miles. Right. Sometimes it is narrated that when people would come to visit him, when they would be going out of the town of Gadian, he would walk miles upon miles with them until he was satisfied that they had, you know, they had left the, the town effectively. So he was very fond of uh, um, of physical exercise. When he would write books, for example, he wouldn't just sit down and exclude himself and write the books. He actually used to pace back and forth in the mosque whilst thinking of ideas that he would write down, note down. He was walking whilst he was writing. Um, uh, and as we all know, the, the books that he's written, uh, the, the phenomenal. Um, so one more example I can give you is, you know, in... In the age, uh, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, this is you know, over a hundred years ago. But we find references whereby when he felt weaker in his uh, latter years, he actually asked for some sort of weights. They called them uh, I think Indian clubs. And right. he, saw, he, he carried them a little bit just to engage the muscles again. Oh. And we can see the fact that he wasn't just there, just writing away and just sitting down. <laughs> he knew that the body needed those things mm. to function at its best. So uh, this was a great example for me personally sure. to see that if people can do that, despite being so busy in their lives, mm. it must have a greater purpose than just exercise, just calling it exercise, for example. Exactly. And and that brings me uh, nicely to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, um, you know, the connection between body and mind or, or um, the body and spirit. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, 
the founder of the MDA Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, uh, actually wrote a book on, um, um, uh, on on this connection, the philosophy of the teaching of Islam. Can you can you tell a little bit more about you know what uh, connection he draws? Uh, so he's written an entire book called The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam. One part of it is how he connects the mind and the body, mm. uh, or the body and the soul, for example. And one verse of the Quran he's actually mentioned is, the translation is that eat and drink, but do not be immoderate. So if we consume way too much, for example, or we consume the wrong types of foods, even science is now proving that these elements can have a detrimental effect on our brains. Mm. So for example, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he gives an example. He says, for instance, when a person experiences sorrow, his eyes become wet. And a person who feels happy, he smiles. All our natural <coughs> actions like eating, drinking, sleeping, mm-hmm. walking, affect our spiritual condition. Mm-hmm. Our physical structure is related intimately to our total humanity. So, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of things that can be spoken here, but it's an absolute... Um, you know, when when I think about it, the fact that he was able to connect these dots such a long time ago, <laughs> and you see people, the doctors and the psychiatrists and people saying, the first thing when we go to a doctor, for example, they will tell you, are you exercising or not? Mm. What are you doing for your health? Even mental health, they will say, are you walking? Are you doing any sort of exactly. exercise? Are you going to the gym? So these connections, these dots were made a long time ago. And now people are even saying over-consuming, obesity, um, all of these things, certain foods, people, uh, doctors would tell you to try different diets and things, see which foods suit you best. So I totally am a believer in the fact that certain foods have a great impact on our minds and our brains at the same time. Right. And and is that then the reason, the rationale for advocating certain foods, a certain type of foods, and, uh, you know, the emphasis on halal food, for example, halal meat, for example, um, uh, you know, not uh, uh, Muslims generally. Uh, well, Muslims not allowed to eat pork, for example. Do you do you think it's the same rationale running there? It's the same rationale, absolutely. For example, even going back to the verse of the Quran that eat and drink, but do not overindulge. So what's happening now is that Islam's laid out a foundation for us that you can eat these types of foods. Right, which contains protein, which contains carbohydrates, which contain fats, good fats. And the Quran has said that stay away from certain other foods. There's a combination that needs to be seen there. One is that we consume all types of food, but in moderation. Hmm. But at the same time, the Quran tells us that certain foods can be harmful to our bodies. And if we understand that they're harmful to our bodies, then they're definitely harmful for our minds and for our souls. So the Quran gives us, uh, people think Quran is just like you know, a form of a religious text and that is all. It's actually a philosophy of life. And now, again, when we look at scholarly articles and writings, we find that there's a great link there that perhaps wasn't established before. So the Quran definitely, it's not just saying that stay away from this type of food because, you know, and there's no uh, rationale behind it. There's mm. absolutely reasoning behind it. We find many, many people around the world who are non-Muslims who say that we refuse to go near certain types of proteins. For example, alcohol is, uh, the consumption of alcohol is forbidden in Islam. Now we know, and we've known this for a very long time, that the consumption of alcohol leads to um, um, indulging in toxicants, 
and mm. they get worse over time. Mm. And uh, there are so many people who go through a variety of illnesses as, as a result of intoxicants. Absolutely, that's a form of addiction. Mm. So the Quran isn't without its rationale. There's a reasoning behind everything that the Quran tells us. Right, and it's amazing, uh, you know, what you what you talked about earlier, which is the linkage between what you eat and 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 how you are and how you feel, drawn by the promised Messiah, uh, you know, more than a hundred years ago, one hundred and twenty or or more years ago, when you know the mod that that's what actually uh, modern research in in modern times in these times that we actually live in, um, actually talks about, it actually states and actually um, inculcates or tries to get us to um, uh, to think and observing right um, uh, Imam Daniel you had a question uh, for Imam Khushid uh, Imam Khushid uh, I have co- a question for you that uh, there is often a stigma uh, attached to speaking up about men's health especially you know mental health uh, so what is your advice uh, on this I think um, thank you for that Imam Daniel it's actually um, a, a very critical question there we've talked about physical health, walking, and, you know, different sort of exercises to build our stamina. But people often sort of, you know, I was just speaking to Daniel earlier that um, there's a great link between our physical uh, being, whatever we consume or drink, and our brains and our minds. In the same way, physical exercise has a great link on our mental health. Mm -hmm. The fact that these prophets and these great saints of God Almighty used to go for miles on, and walking shows that it wasn't just the physical aspect that was there. These used to these people used to be doing silent forms of retreats and walking at a fast pace because that would impact their brains. Now we have research telling <coughs> us that walking in the morning can produce certain <coughs> hormones in the body and certain elements can be produced which makes one feel a lot better. Mm-hmm. So these things talking about mental health and there's a lot of stigma around it mm, yes, and the, the, the reason why I think this way is for example if I go out I get injured I fall down you know there's a, there's a physical injury there mm. yeah, it's certainly. visible to everyone right so they can see oh you've broken your arm or maybe you've injured mm-hmm. yourself it's, 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 I've put something on and a band on maybe they can see the injury right there but with mental health, if somebody goes and says, I'm not feeling too well because I you know, I feel sad, I feel lonely, you know, I feel depressed, maybe there's something going on, mm. um, that's not visible straight away. So people think there are two groups of people. One would say that you know, absolutely you should go find some treatment, find some, get some rest and things like that. And there's mm. a totally other side of, you know, of the equation that would say that oh, there's no such thing. Mm. And they would argue that you, know, you can get through it and it's fine, no problem. The reality is that every one of us faces mental health at some stage in our lives. When you look at grief, happiness, joy, isolation, all these factors. I mean, this is exactly mental health, right, isn't it? You know, going through different phases in life and feelings and emotions. But there's the key here. Mm -hmm. Islam does talk about this. For example, Islam says that in the remembrance of God Almighty, Mm -hmm. the hearts find peace, right? That is fine when coming out of grief and with anguish and, you know, when we lose somebody, these elements can be improvised through, uh, mm. through means of prayer, right? But Islam also advocates that if somebody is really unwell, 
to the to the point that he is not able to function properly anymore mm. medical intervention is absolutely key mm. yeah right these things can take us to a point <clears throat> but just like any other illness for example mm. you need to seek a doctor and seek treatment for that ailment in the same way if medical mm. uh, if a psychiatrist needs to be seen um it needs to be done it can't just be avoided because you know people come up with their own opinions that this is you know you will overcome it just you know put your will power in and you will be fine sometimes that is wrong um, in my opinion that could be uh, uh, giving somebody the wrong information there hmm. so let one decide for himself that if he feels really unwell hmm. then the average person shouldn't be going around <clears throat> diagnosing people about you know mental health in fact the psychiatrists mm-hmm. or the mental health experts there are so many out there now and there is so much information out there now that i think it's very accessible to the normal person now yeah so imam khushid um, just one last question yet mm-hmm. uh, you know during the pandemic uh, covid-19 we saw that many people have to go through such phase yeah So yeah. how do you think Islam helps those people in such uh, who was who are going through such period and phase how do, how do you think Islam has helped those people Look I think we all suffered consequences <coughs> of COVID-19 whether it was loss of family not being able to see families you know when we um, one personal example I can give is when my um my father's uncle we used to refer to him as you know our grandfather as well mm-hmm. he passed away we weren't able to go and see him and there, there's stories like that across the board people have suffered a lot of um, loss as a result of covid-19 mm. as islam we truly believe in one verse of the quran is wasta'inu bisabri wasla that seek god's help through patience and prayer yeah, certain uh, so when we knew we, we knew that there's nothing else we could do we knew that the doctors were on the front line putting their own lives at risk so in that instance prayer and patience is the only thing that we could seek mm. and this was the way of the prophets of god almighty that they would always there are two things the, the way i would like to look at it daniel it's mm-hmm. one is to do something about it physically mm. and at the same time is to pray for it so both things go hand in hand if one only prays and doesn't do anything about it that is also incomplete if somebody just goes out and does everything he can but doesn't pray for it again the islamic understanding is that that is incomplete so both things doing something about it and praying for it at the same time go hand in hand so i totally agree there's been tremendous loss uh, of lives and i know so many uh, members for example i can give you one example here a very beloved friend uh, in Manchester 28 years old he passed away um because of covid-19 and that had a tremendous effect on the entire community because he was young we had seen him for so many years and <clears throat> I, i i recall that um in his last moments you know his his mother was of course she had lost uh, her dear son and i and other members of the community we went and we you know paid our respects but she was full of uh, strength surprisingly and i i was very surprised to see that she was full of strength and she she had accepted the fact that her son had not passed and i i did actually ask her that the same question that you know what is giving you that strength and you, you know you're so brave for, for for going through this and she would say that the fact that there are 
so many people around the world, so many people calling in, hundreds of people showing up uh, at his funeral during COVID, uh, at, his, um, at his peak. Everybody praying for that young man just goes to show that how many people there are who are actually praying for him. So the strength in prayer is something that gives us a lot of hope. And this was a great example that I felt, which also gave me inspiration and, and even more willpower to go out and serve and to pray more for the, for these individuals and for these people to pray for themselves as well. So it just goes, to, um, you know, it, this, this is a great example for all of us that even though COVID did take us away, take our loved ones away, it gave us a good opportunity to pray for everyone around us. Right. If I can... Um I ask you to stay online for a for a, a couple of more minutes, um, and I want to bring uh, uh, you know you and Imam Daniel into both uh, into into the next question that I'm about to ask, which is about you know you mentioned Jamia or the Institute of Theology and uh, and languages and the emphasis that there um, that um, is there on uh, on physical exercise and on physical activity. So if I can ask you first, Imam Daniel, you know what. what uh, what sort of activities were you personally, you, you being a recent graduate, so I guess you know you can provide us a, a great perspective on what sort of activities are there and what sort of activities were you personally involved in and liked? Yeah, personally, you know, I'm you know, really fond of uh, sports. I'm a sporty person. You know, I used to play, in special, especially in, uh, in Jamia during those periods. Uh, I used to play squash, badminton, table tennis, long tennis. You know, that was my, you know, the uh, fun part of life and uh, you know while playing the thing happens what happens that at first you don't want to play the game because you know you kind of feel tiring very tiring and you know I don't want to go for the sports and I have so many people in uh, doing Jamia uh, that uh, you know I've so I've so uh, shown them that they have go, got the fat they are going to be obese because you know that things uh, uh, you know uh, mentally emotionally impacts on one person's life and health as well mm-hmm. uh, so you know we need to seek such uh, you know we a need balance to, really yeah. yeah between physical activity and others and Khushid if I can ask you so firstly uh, you know when did you graduate from the Institute of Theology and Languages I graduated in 2013. 2013. So you you must be one of the okay. er, earliest graduates then um, yeah. of the institute. So uh, so what sort of physical activities did you participate in? Well, so when I was growing up, um, I was born in West Africa in the Gambia. Right. Uh, football is the craze in West Africa. <laughs> it's a, it's an absolute craze there. Sure. So coming from school, we would play for hours and end in the streets, just chasing the ball, playing football. So that passion sort of carried throughout my life. And in Jamia, there was a lot of, um, uh, our football teams were actually very, very good. So there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, playing amongst teams. And even, I think we didn't speak about this as well, that playing sports actually builds friendships and it makes you, again, it um, those happy moments are there, are present. Mm. So the friendships that I made in, in Jamia, for example, we're across the, the the board, not just from my year, we were from all the years because we used to play sports together. Sure. So I think football was one thing which carried me through. Yeah, you know, we used to enjoy a lot of football during football during Jamia times. Right, and finally, um, which team are you rooting for uh, in in the World Cup? Is it an African team well, or, <laughs> or is it closer to home? 
there's, there's two teams actually. Right. They're both playing today. So I support England, of course. Yeah. And uh, I lived in Senegal for a number of years. Okay. So I'm rooting for two teams. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Well, all the best to both of your teams. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us. It's really interesting talking to you. And thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. So that was Imam Khushid uh, talking to us about various things, about the importance of physical activity in Islam, the uh, uh, the rationale for, for physical activity uh, in Islam, the rationale for eating healthy food uh, or, or foods in Islam, um, as well as uh, the the important connection of the uh, uh, of the spirit or the soul and the body. Right, uh, we are coming up to the 8 o'clock news, so we shall now take uh, a break for that. And when we come back, we will continue this discussion on the importance of um, physical activity, importance um, on mental health, uh, as well as um, um, other issues faced by men in general, and the importance of actually putting a spotlight to those issues throughout the year and not just in the month of November. So please do stay tuned. Uh, the number to call should you like to participate in this discussion is 020-868-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. of Islam Radio. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi Then arise and repent, and win the pleasure of God, 
through good works. Remember that the punishment of wrong beliefs is after death. Being a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim will be determined on the day of judgment. But a person who goes beyond the limit and wrongdoing, transgression, disobedience, and vice is punished in this life. Such a one cannot escape God's chastisement. So hasten to win God's pleasure, and before the dreadful day arrives, namely the day of intensity, of the plague of which the prophets have warned, make your peace with God. He is very benevolent to the one moment of the repentance that melts the heart. He can forgive the sins spread over 70 years. Do not say the repentance is not accepted. Remember that you cannot be saved by your deeds. It is grace that saves and not deeds. Benevolent and merciful Lord, bestow thy grace upon all of us. We are thy servants and have fallen down upon thy threshold. Amen. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 21st of November 2022. The time is 8:05 a.m. And we're talking about the importance of men's health, um, the work that the charity uh, Movember.com does. Um, we've been talking in detail, uh, in detail about what, the, uh, why are certain foods um, or drinks, for that matter, not allowed or prohibited in Islam, and uh, the very important connection between uh, body and mind, uh, or the soul and um, uh, the body. Um, uh, there is actually a great book, as we mentioned earlier, written by uh, the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community. It's called The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, and I would urge our listeners to read that book. Um, it is indeed a gem. Um, uh, before we went on to the break, we were talking about, um, uh, you know, the um, from the perspective of the importance of physical activity and the importance that's uh, placed in the Institute of Theology and languages uh, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, which trains uh, people to become imams. And it's a seven-year uh, course that uh, they have to go through. Imam Shahzeb, if I can bring you in into that discussion as well. So, you know, we were talking about what we, t- we spoke earlier with Imam Khurshid and Imam Daniel shared their personal experience as well. Uh, what sort of sports were you personally interested in? And did you uh, take part in any activities? 
This is a very important question because, um, you know, there may be some listeners out there who perhaps don't align the two things, you know, being an imam and being a sports individual or being an active individual. But, um, you know, I would say I'm a bit of an all-rounder, really. Um, some athletics, uh, some football and some, um, you know, uh, injuries relating to such sports. Unfortunately, I had an, an ACL um, and a meniscus tear um, and therefore my football was halted for a year or so and thereafter by the grace of God I've recovered and you know it's all well and good but it's a very key part of living that healthy lifestyle I'm sure um, you guys discussed this in detail and indeed Imam Khushid, um did you know being healthy maintaining that level of fitness that Islam requires us to because you know our listeners must be aware that um, the five daily prayers um, require physical movement and if we aren't in um, good shape or we are lethargic and have a disposition whereby we, you know, are inherently, um, rather intrinsically lazy, then those five daily prayers won't seem like a task, but it will seem uh, more like an impossible task. So mm. we're very much so encouraged to make sure that we are living that healthy lifestyle. And that's why our, our diet, which uh, Brother Zia, you talked about, it's very important. Uh, you know, there are such things which are prohibited within our religion for a great reason. And, you know, we are required to have a balanced diet. So and that's, you know, whatever we eat, um, it has a profound effect on our um, abilities and indeed our disposition. That's why um, our religion is very much so pragmatic in making sure that the way that we carry ourselves during this um, limited time is a very um, efficient one and a very healthy one. So, yeah, going back to your question, sports, um, we try to do our best. You know, uh, our institution um, in Surrey encourages us um, mm. to have those exercises. We have annual sports, uh, annual walks, um, and various other weekly-based um, activities. So have you been able to continue some of those physical activities after oh, yeah. you graduated? And when did you graduate from John? I graduated many, many moons ago in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not, not that <laughs> Not many. too long, no, okay. not too long. <laughs> right. 2019. Um, yeah, I mean, where I'm based, we um, endeavor to play football at least once a week. Right. Um, and that in itself may seem... Um, not suffice but um, you know the intensity it's there and it's a good hour or so so I think it's more of being consistent too uh, making mm. sure that you're you know Absolutely. doing it every week in and out rather than you know fortnightly or perhaps even you know once a month um, so it's very important yeah we can't stress and perhaps even in our you know I would like to mention this point the community that we belong to as in the ethnic community uh, our culture it's Dare I say, we don't really promote um, exercise, mm. or we you, don't at least. You mean the South Asian, Asian, the South, South Asian, Asian culture? Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, so it's you know very important that we you know make mm. sure that we do make um, an effort towards exercise. Um, otherwise, we'll have a lot of health issues. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I over the weekend I had the opportunity to go to a very nice spot, uh, Box Hill uh, in oh, Surrey. It's a, it's, nice, a, it's yeah. a beautiful uh, uh, place with beautiful views and. Uh, mm. And it's uh, it, there's uh, there's a trek which is quite an uphill um, uh, track actually cycling track, mm-hmm. and um, we saw you know quite a few uh, you know women who would be at least uh, uh, you know over sixty or probably even over seventy, and they were cycling up that oh, wow. uh, that track, and and I was really impressed mm. that 
you know that they have the motivation and um and the ability to yeah. be able to do that you know i i and and you know talking about the you know the the culture within uh, the southeast asian ethnicity absolutely i i doubt if mm. if anybody would <laughs> if any female would have the yeah. uh, or very few would have the wherewithal to actually carry out yeah especially uh, in the cold especially in the, yeah add yeah, to the cold absolutely right excellent thank you very much uh, for that um, imam shahzeb right so that brings us to the end of uh, the first topic which was about uh, the importance of men's health and we brought in women's health towards the end of that topic as well. Um, right, we shall now take a quick break and when we come back, we will discuss the second topic which is about the treatment of migrant workers around the world. You know, what, what sort of troubles do they go through? What are their pains uh, and issues around the world? Um, let's uh, uh, put a spotlight on that and again, the number to call to participate in this discussion is 0208687878. You can also tweet us at UK. Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio following the prophethood of muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him is the easiest route through which one can reach god obedience to it wins the gift of divine love and communion greater and more than ever before however a perfect follower of it cannot be called a prophet per se for that would be an affront to the perfect and absolute prophethood of Muhammad peace be upon him yet with regard to him the two expressions ummati and nabi can be applied in conjunction because by doing so no disrespect is implied to the perfect and final prophethood of Muhammad peace be upon him rather because of this beneficence of the holy prophet peace be upon him the light of his prophethood becomes all the more clear and resplendent Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد 
Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 21st of November 2022. The time is 8.16 a.m. and we're about to talk about the second topic, which is about uh, the treatment of migrant workers around the world and uh, the pains and the troubles that they go through um, in in so many countries. And and, and there has been recently a lot of talk about that uh, uh, because of the World Cup as well, but we we shall talk about it from a a global perspective. But before we do that, uh, Imam Shahzeb, if I can ask you, what um it, what's the islamic perspective on um on not only migrant workers but on uh, on general treatment of workers on general treatment uh, uh and you know if i if i can say because there is a lot of um uh, slavery is a is a big issue um in 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 this uh, subject as well so w- what again um uh, did the, the Prophet say about, uh, or Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, about um, uh, you know superiority of of a certain race uh, of one race versus the other? It's a very pertinent question and relevant to the times um, that we are currently in. And dare I say, this um, conversation will continue for many years because of the relevance it upholds. The issue is that Islam has always been um, a religion which. Um, distributes its rights to is towards various people from various backgrounds, um, regardless of their you know color, creed, or um, um, loyalty. And what we find is that because of this very principle, the universal and profound teachings of Islam are meant to create a universal human culture based on the unity of the one God and equality of mankind. And in terms of your question about slavery, um, you know our listeners will be surprised to know that it was Islam which gradually and systemically got rid of slavery, um, and you know made made sure that it wasn't um, overnight. Because if those slaves, the Holy Prophet peace and blessings be upon him, um, relieved them, then there would be a great amount of unemployment. So his holy, his uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam made sure that this process was done in a very uh, prudent manner and what we find here is that you know this practice of slaves being freed rather slavery in general um you know was present since time immemorial and the holy prophet of islam made sure that you know during his lifetime at least um and after him um the practice would cease and come to an end and this is a great feat in itself and what we find currently in some parts of the world um you know, in Africa, in, over here, in, you know, there's modern-day slavery. Um, and, you know, in, in various parts of the world, we find there is, you know, the element of slavery, um, which shouldn't exist um, because of, you know, the various uh, rights mm. um, that are so prevalent. 
great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, on that note, let me bring in our next guest, who is Isabel Archer from the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Good morning, um, Isabel. So uh, if I can start with uh, by asking you, uh, you know, the point that uh, Imam Shahzeh was making about slavery. Does slavery really exist around the world, even in, in this day and age? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you, you know, as your other guest called it, we are talking about, you know, what is called modern day slavery. And that can really look like a variety of practices. Um, in in the Gulf region where um, my my work is focused, um, a lot of that looks at the treatment of migrant workers who make up uh, the vast majority of the private sector workforce. And so we are looking at how companies' practices um, or negligence, you know, contributes to a situation where workers can be um, exposed to abuse, where they can be exploited. Um, and this is something which happens. Uh, it is common. Um, it is, uh, you know, p- particularly bad and workers are, are exposed to a kind of a range of different types of abuse, but it absolutely is happening today around the world. I know that uh, there has been a lot of discussion about, because of the ongoing uh, World Cup in Qatar, uh, you know, pretty much a spotlight on um, mm. on what's happened in Qatar. But if we, if we you know, spoke about this uh, more generally and uh, took a holistic uh, view across the globe, um, what sort of troubles do what are what really are the pains of the of migrant workers? Um, are there any common themes across the world? Well, I think some you know some of the common themes are actually that um, you know migrant workers face that kind of abuse, discrimination, uh, exposure to exploitation at every stage of the kind of migration process. So this is not something that is specifically happening in Qatar and Doha. This is something which really starts for workers. In their home countries, you know, people looking for better, you know, better employment to best themselves, to provide for their families. And often what that means is they are, you know, they're subject to kind of both pull factors, you know, the, the attraction of, of working overseas um, to, to, to find themselves a better job, but also push factors from home where, you know, employment might be scarce, um, wages might be lower. And so they're already in that position where, um, you know they they are vulnerable to um, to abuse because, for example, uh, we see patterns like recruitment agencies in home countries, uh, you know, recruiting workers and charging them money to to get a job, and that's one of the the fundamental drivers of abuse for migrant workers around the world. We've seen it most recently, actually, uh, here in the UK, with uh, workers, particularly from Nepal, being recruited into, say, the agriculture sector. And many of the, the abuses that we're seeing, the, the kind of being trapped in work, paying large recruitment fees, taking out debt to be able to pay those recruitment fees, those are things which we, we have seen for years um, among workers to Qatar and the broader Gulf region. We've recently seen here in the UK, um, uh, you know, an example of this, which, which actually shocked many of us, which is, uh, you know, Sir Mo Farah uh, coming out and talking mm-hmm. about his own experiences and... Uh, um, uh, the ordeal that he had to go through as a as a child. Um, are there any measures? Uh, have any measures been put in place uh, to ensure that that doesn't that sort of thing doesn't happen here um, in the first world? Well, there are certainly you know services, uh, safeguarding units being trained on the issue of human trafficking, uh, particularly in the UK. You know mm. we 
did have one of the earlier um, legislations passed in the UK, which addressed specifically the issue of modern slavery. Um, and I think that that has gone um, a certain way to, uh, you know, kickstarting the conversation around these kinds of abuses and how prevalent they are, because I do think that it's the case that, um, you know, many of your listeners will be um, maybe surprised to hear that these kinds of practices are happening. Um, and I would say that the, the uh, Modern Slavery Act that we have in the UK, mm. it, you know, there are uh, limitations to it, but I do think that it has, um, as I say, kind of kick-started that conversation. Isabella, I wanted to ask, why is it such that it took the World Cup to come um, and the awareness around the migrant workers is brought to everybody's attention? I mean, it might be my ignorance, but um, the issue perhaps was there. But I think it took the World Cup for this to be promoted a bit more, or rather, mm-hmm. it was brought to everybody's attention. So, so why is why is it like this? I think that's that's exactly it. I mean, um, you know, from from our perspective, we take the approach um, that companies, private enterprises, have an obligation to respect human rights and labour rights, and you know, what the World Cup has done has created huge opportunity for multinationals from all around the world. UK, the rest of Europe, North America, Asia, to either establish operations in uh, Qatar and the broader Gulf region, but but or, or expand kind of existing operations um, and profit off that. Um, you know, for example, we have um, noted particularly the expansion of the hospitality sector, the hotel sector. You know, to prepare to be able to host people for the duration of the um, of the tournament and undoubtedly the activities of those hotel brands would not have been um, you know they would not have been encouraged to expand there were it not for the World Cup and so particularly for us that's why we have um, you know one of the kind of focus areas for us has been the activities of, of particularly multinational hotel brands who are profiting off uh, the, the the labor of migrant workers to to Qatar because my thinking is this I think that when the World Cup ends um, I think in a month or so time mm-hmm. this whole issue around migrant workers will die down with the World Cup um, mm. and that won't resolve I, anything all it would really do is take the focus away from the World Cup and after it's yeah. finished then you know those those poor workers will still be there with the um, with the issues that they face I think it's a huge concern, not not just for us, for many other rights organisations. Um, you know, the World Cup is such a short sort of window in which it's actually you know, ongoing. There's been over a decade of preparation. Um, and, you know, just for example, we know that many workers are, are working short-term contracts to kind of supplement the workforce during the tournament. Many of those people will have paid recruitment fees, uh, as I kind of outlined, to get that job. Um, Often those costs run into the thousands of pounds, and we know that it can take months, even years, for workers to actually even pay off the cost of getting the job, let alone you know work, receive their owed wages, and be able to save up, um, you know, and send money back to their families, which is what many of many people wish to do. Um, and it's it's a real concern that after after the World Cup ends, you know, many of the kind of progress, uh, the steps that have been taken, may be rolled back. Um, and I think you know an example of that again. For the hotel industry, one of the reasons that we have also focused on the industry is that there has been an under, it has been under scrutinised um, globally speaking. These these are brands which operate globally, but they have been 
uh, under scrutinised compared with some other sectors um, like, as I say, agriculture in the UK or apparel, uh, the apparel sector in, in say, Asia. And, um, you know, I, we know that they have taken some um, steps. They have improved uh, certain practices ahead of the World Cup. Some of that is down to requirements from the World Cup organisers that have been put in place for the duration of the World Cup. But I am very concerned that come January, you know, those practices, that scrutiny won't be there on many of these brands and they will go back to, to the, the kind of approaches that um, they were taking previously. So it, it's definitely a, a very real concern and I think that um, for many rights groups, really we will only be able to sort of take stock of what is happening and, and the picture you know, come, come the new year. Isabel, um, you would have um, listened to or heard or read about the um, press conference that the FIFA president uh, did. Um, would you agree that there is uh, some hypocrisy in terms of the coverage of what's happened in, in Qatar, given that closer to home, uh, literally tens of people have died just crossing mm-hmm. the channel and, and there is... Um, you know, the uh, a, a migrant center was attacked um, recently mm-hmm. as well, um, and and you know we have a huge unresolved issue involving thousands and thousands of people who are stuck on the other mm-hmm. side of the border who want to come here. A lot of them have come here indeed, and some of them have died making the journey. Would you agree that they, you know, that is something that we should be talking about more than you know what's happening thousands of miles away? Well, I think it is being discussed. Um, you know, I, I think that there are many, many civil society groups highlighting exactly the issues that you've just described, which mm. are obviously appalling rights violations that we should all be concerned with. Um, you know, I, I actually think the criticism of Qatar by international organizations has been built on the foundation of the work of groups in, um, for example, Nepal, India, um, we, ha- we are in touch with groups in uh, East Africa, particularly in Kenya. And the work that those groups do and have been doing for decades now to support migrant workers who are subject to these abuses is extremely important. All of our work is, is founded on, on um, many of the investigations that our partners do in, in those regions of the world. And so I think it is important to recognize that the criticism is is grounded in those grassroots organizations' work. It is sure. legitimate criticism. The, the standards often that we are discussing with companies are either international standards, um, so they are, um, you know, we take as our starting point the resource center, the uh, international framework of the UN guiding principles on for business and human rights, which highlights um, and, and outlines the roles of private sector to uh, respect human rights. But we also take the the standards of the um, Qatari government and the labor law and the improvements to labor law that have been passed. And I think it's important to recognize those improvements, but it's also important to recognize that that there are gaps. And that is why we um, particularly are scrutinizing the activities of these multinational companies, many of whom are actually UK headquarter companies profiting um, you know, overseas off, off the back of this uh, migrant workforce. And so I think that the criticism um, you know, of, of, uh, of the, the state of labor rights in Qatar is legitimate, it is proportionate. I think that the, the comments from Mr. Infantino over the weekend were hugely disparaging and dismissive um, of the migrant workers who are working so hard to, you know, to, to, to make this tournament a, a huge success. And at the same time, just yesterday, we heard um, a report in the New York Times highlighted again 
um, the situation for a couple of hundred workers at the Albayat Stadium for the opening game, again, um, left in a, in, in a situation of uh, abuse and neglect. And so we have to keep talking about these conversations. Yes, there are very important rights issues elsewhere in the world, and there are very, there's very important work being done by rights groups on, uh, on those. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us, Isabel Archer. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Have a lovely day and the rest of the week. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. So that was uh, Isabel Archer from the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre uh, talking to us about um, uh, human rights in general as well as the issues that have um, arisen um, out of the uh, World Cup uh, in Qatar. I think it's very interesting. I think the points that uh, Ms. Isabel made uh, are very pertinent. And, you know, it's, again, we have to take um, the holistic approach. Um, yes, you know, there have been human rights violations um, in Qatar in recent times, which, yeah. you know, everybody's now aware of, perhaps they weren't aware of. Mm-hmm. But um, we also have to look at, you know, the point that you made, uh, Brother Zia, about... Um, referring to the FIFA president's comments um, on our history. Um, And yes, because the issue that we currently face within the UK is such whereby the Home Secretary is trying to grapple with the situation by um, pushing those migrants away that are crossing the channel. Um, So we have our own issues at home. There's issues across um, Mm. borders. Um, And to highlight that and to take that away from the World Cup, I think it's... I don't know. I think it's not right um, because it's such a momentous occasion um, and there's a time and a place. I think that's, it's just being overshadowed. The whole thing's being overshadowed. But I guess our next caller will help us try and understand the um, situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it, absolutely. I think it's interesting that, you know, we, we've have, we have so many issues um, uh, at home. Yeah. And, um, uh, and 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 yet uh, the media just uh, you know seems to be talking about uh, uh, issues while legitimate. Uh, no two mm. things about that. Uh, you know, thousands of miles away. Let, let, let's uh, bring in Christina um, uh, Petriarca, uh, Petriarca, who is uh, an ant- who who works in the anti-slavery international uh, organization. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, uh, Christina, did I did I pronounce your last name right? Uh, it's uh, Patriarca. Patriarca. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Christina, as you would have probably listened in, we're talking about um, uh, the issues um, that migrant workers face. We're talking about uh, the prevalence of slavery still in in this day and age. Um, and the issues uh, of migrant workers that they face around the world, um, you know, closer to home as well, and um, uh, as well as elsewhere. So, so your thoughts on this? Do you, do you think this is a pertinent issue? Do you think we should be should be in twenty twenty two talking about slavery and anti slavery? Well, I don't think uh, slavery, modern slavery. Um, well, slavery should still be existing hmm. but unfortunately um, it, it, it is still the case yeah exactly and that's why anti-slavery international is really focused on uh, yeah addressing cases of modern slavery and uh, tackling the root causes that still uh, make modern slavery possible today how would you define modern slavery 
So modern slavery is uh, an umbrella term that includes um, a range of situations where there is lack of agency and severe exploitation. Um, there are different forms fundamentally. Um, and um, for instance, if we look at the World Cup, uh, uh, we have there examples of forced labor and bonded labor bonded labor specifically mm. so just to take these two cases when we talk about forced labor we uh, there is a lack of um, free and informed consent of a person in taking up a job but also lack of freedom to leave this job at any time without repercussion or threat of repercussions whereas if we look at bonded labor just these two examples uh, uh, is when a person ends up working for no wages or wages below the minimum in order to repay a debt that they have contracted, uh, for instance, to repay recruitment fees, and their debt is held against them, even if the value of their work exceeds the value of the debt. Do you think uh, these two examples of uh, slavery, modern slavery, can be found in uh, in the Western world as well? Uh, yes, unfortunately. I mean, uh, as uh, as we have seen, there is a lot of coverage at the moment in the news about uh, the, the Qatar World, um, yeah, the Qatar World Cup. Uh, um, but um, this is not an isolated event. The exploitation of migrant workers is systemic uh, and is systemic in Qatar, in the Gulf, but uh, across the world, as you say. Um, usually migrant work is key to the success of major events, but also of the enjoyment you know, of services and goods in our everyday life. Uh, so it's not an isolated issue, but it's something that uh, unfortunately is present uh, everywhere. Were you surprised at uh, the revelations that Mofera, Sir Mofera, came out with? Um, I don't. Sorry, um, I might have missed those, so I so, can't So, so uh, uh, you know the um, uh, our, our star here, uh, who is I believe from Somalia, um, Sir Mofera. He uh, he was actually uh, trafficked here uh, in his early years from right, uh, from yeah. africa and um, and he spent uh, you know the first few years of his life actually in in that um um, um yeah. in, in that area yeah sorry i had missed the name but um yeah unfortunately this is a very common situation for mm. many for many people and there is a lack of um, understanding often around also what trafficking is uh, and uh, you know the um, the relationship between trafficking immigration often the two terms are put together but there you know there is uh, so much complexity and uh, that also means that Unfortunately, often com- concepts and situations then get misunderstood or overlooked uh, and people have to endure um, really difficult situations uh, uh, without having the support they need or the protection they need. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you very much, Christina Patriarca, for joining us from Anti-Slavery International. You've certainly put us wiser. Um, have a great day and the rest of the week. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you very, very much for joining once again. So that was uh, Christina Patriarca, as I said, from Anti-Slavery International. Uh, let's now take a quick break. Um, uh, but before we go on the break, um, when we come back, uh, Imam Shahzeh, what I want to ask you is, uh, yeah, there's uh, so many problems uh, closer to home. Uh, you know, thousands and, and, and thousands of people trying to cross the English Channel here, not to mention what's happening in uh, in mainland Europe, not to mention what's happening in Eastern Europe. Uh, remember that there's still thousands of people trying to walk their way 
uh, from war-torn regions um, into Europe in, in safe havens. Uh, thousands of people uh, trying to cross um, uh, from Africa into um, into Europe. So um, lots of issues there. And, and, uh, and, and then, you know, uh, the media over here focusing on just one theme, which is uh, which is the Qatari World Cup, which, you know, uh, I, I fully agree that, you know, the issues that that have been highlighted in the media are legitimate. No two things about that. Yes, there has been um, abuse there. Yes, there have been issues. But uh, would you say that um, these issues um, um, or this coverage has been uh, uh, disproportionate? So um, let's talk about that right after this break and these messages. to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show here, the Voice of Islam. Um, just before the break, we were, uh, well, I was posed a question by Brother Zia about the treatment of the migrant workers um, in the current dynamic, whereby, you know, here um, in England, we are also facing an immigration crisis. And indeed, in various parts of the world, um, the issue is very much so prevalent. Um, so I guess it's, you know, we, we naturally we condemn any any form of slavery, any form of, um, you know, abuse, um, of being um, exploited. But it's very controversial. Um, the fact that over here, you know, literally a couple of weeks ago, there was an attack on a migrant um, centre. And, um, you yeah, know, the police had reported that as a hate crime. Um, and there's various individuals, families, uh, you know, young people, and indeed the elderly who are trying to cross uh, the channel um, and make a better life for themselves in this country. So, I think to highlight this this issue um, again and again during the World Cup, um, I think it, ser- it serves a certain agenda. Um, you know, and that's not going away from the point that it's you know this needs to be talked about. Those migrant workers in in the Gulf countries should have rights and should certainly have um you know uh, rights which you know other um, individuals of that land have but it's um i think it's been particularly chosen um to be highlighted at this particular time which you know it doesn't really sit right with me but um i guess um these are the times that we are living in imam daniel the the um answers and indeed the position of Islam when it comes to being given rights and indeed 
the whole question around equality um, with regards to and where we come from and who we are. Mm. Where does Islam stand on <clears> this? <throat> yeah, very uh, relevant question. When it comes to Islamic perspectives, uh, you know, we are looking, uh, when we look at our society, people from all around the world uh, globally are marginalized, uh, especially those who are immigrants uh, when it comes to their health and uh, uh, work. So, you know, while looking uh, through the Islamic perspective, we see that uh, Islam gives such a uh, comprehensive and uh, sublime teachings uh, comprising of all the aspects of life um, uh, guiding us uh, to the um, at uh, guiding us and give us the best guideline so while looking at um, through the Islamic lens we find that you know 1400 years ago 1500 years ago uh, during the life of the Holy Prophet peace and blessing of Allah be upon him uh, that you know before him uh, slavery was prevalent and uh, when Islam came uh, Holy Prophet uh, maybe some blessing of Allah be upon him uh, he himself uh, during his life uh, freed more than 60 slaves and so goes fair with the other companions of his uh, that you know if you look at even uh, you know small amount of people uh, during that era like seven or eight uh, companions of uh, the holy prophet and uh, him they totally freed more than 30,000 uh, slaves uh, and once uh, you know I was reading that uh, Osman uh, one of the caliph of uh, Islam he freed more than 20,000 slaves in a day. So such was the teaching and uh, of Islam and this is the teaching we are following and we are following and try, we seek to you know uh, spread those teachings uh, even in our community, MDA Muslim community and um, you know and so does the Imam of uh, the head wide, uh, worldwide head of the MDM Muslim community, you know, he's also um, preaching this teaching that, you know, there are some basic human uh, necessities, basic human rights, uh, which we need to, you know, give to our fellow beings and uh, our fellow workers. And, you know, again, while looking at the um, Islamic side from from that era, from the era of Holy Prophet, we see that, you know, uh, he not only, you know, freed the slaves, but he freed in such a, uh, such a way that they can become the beneficial uh, part of the society. Like, for example, uh, one of uh, one of the slaves was Hazrat Bilal. You know, he was uh, from the African background and uh, uh, he freed him and uh, not only he freed him, but he once, you know, what happened that on the occasion of the conquest of uh, Makkah, um, he said, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that whosoever will come under the flag of uh, Bilal, uh, he will be protected. He will be protected. You know, these are the words. They are so sublime and uh, they mean a lot to such a person. And who was freed uh, as a slave, 
and um, not only this he was also called um, sayyidna bilal meaning that he was a chief he was he was one of the chiefs of islam uh, during that period and so you know there are many more examples uh, we can find uh, through uh, uh, throughout that era and uh, yeah uh, i was i'm also recalling one more example that uh, during that era one of his companions name was uh, zaid so what happened that uh, holy prophet uh, you know he got his cousin zana married to his uh, one of his freed slave zaid so that was the status which he uh, gave to uh, to those people who were you know treated uh, like um, they were t- uh, tissue papers uh, nothing uh, means in a society and uh, even though you know what happened that he even gave his son his son uh, the rank of a commander uh, the rank of a commander to the army which was comprising of such you know high and um, esteemed uh, companions uh, of the holy prophet and when he was given the title of commander to that army he was only 70 years old yeah and he was a son of a slave of freed slave so there are so many examples we find uh, during the life of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam may peace and blessing of allah be upon him so you know when we look at those examples we we, we find that you know such a beautiful religion uh, to follow and anybody can fall to such a religion yeah and if i can you know clearly remember recall that our very famous boxer mohammad ali mm. he as well you know imam shahzeb mm. you know elaborate something on mohammad oh, ali yeah, exactly um you know it goes without saying that uh, mohammad ali uh, was more than just a boxer he advocated for the teachings of Islam and he promoted the true teachings of Islam um in various parts of the world wherever he fought and he showed um and expressed and quotes um the old prophet of Islam by stating that you know a, a white man is not superior to a black and a black not to a white um and in essence what we find is that it, it i guess it just comes back to our ability to coexist with one another to understand that at the end of the day the colors of our skin are merely superficial in the sense that behind all of that we're the same um and yeah. you know it's having that education having the understanding that so many of us had um so many of the muslims had you know over 1500 years ago um and it shows how forward thinking islam was in an era where you know human rights wasn't even a conversation mm. um and to bring that into perspective like the holy prophet islam did you know the, the direct quote uh, i have before me was oh people your lord is one you are the progeny of the same father hence it is not permissible for you to make any description discrimination between high and low neither an arab has superiority over a non-arab nor a non-arab over an arab a white person is not superior to a black person nor a black person superior to a white the most honorable among you in the sight of god is the one who is the most righteous 
And that's a direct quote from the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So the religion of Islam was so forward-thinking um, that you know, these these statements that we read out now seem you know, like they should be in place. But, you know, over the course of 1,500 years, you know, having these statements was a revelation, you know, it was something which um, just could not be thought about because of the circumstances, because of the world, the way the world was and um, because of the way the people lived. Um, that's why we're so thankful for Islam, the way it's, um, you know, taking us out from the, the spiritual darkness into <coughs> light and allowed us to think openly and allowed us to give other people um, their rights um, and in essence to diversify what we find here mm. is that the religion of Islam isn't a religion which is merely applicable <coughs> to a certain region of, of the world but it's you know found across all the continents um, regardless of you know where one may reside because it it's applicable because you know from where we stand at least it makes sense there isn't a single statement which contradicts any form of logic um, and you know there are so many verses within the Holy Quran which provide evidence for all of us um, showing us how um, forward-thinking this book was you know one such verse is stated in chapter 2 verse 178 in which Allah the Almighty states it is not righteousness that you turn your faces to the east or the west but truly righteous is he who believes in Allah and the last day and the angels and the book and the prophets and spends his money for love of him on the kindred and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and those who ask for charity and for ransoming the captives and who observes prayer and pays as a guard, and those who fulfill their promise when they have made one, and the patient in poverty and afflictions, and the steadfast in the time of war. It is these who have proved truthful, and it is these who are the God-fearing. So that is what true righteousness is. It's where, it, it isn't where we just turn our heads to um, the east or the west, but it's actually going beyond that. It's supporting one another. It's supporting the orphans, the needy, making sure that we spend out of what Allah has given us in that cause. And, you know, really making sure that the world that we live in is a better world, um, whereby we can actually make a difference and we can support one another rather than ridicule and demote one another. That is the true teachings of Islam. And that is why, you know, we stand by Islam during all of these attacks that we find of, you know, Islamophobia um, and Islam being purported as a religion whereby it, in fact, encourages violence to the complete opposite, in fact. You know, we find so many uh, narrations and so many verses. Um, you know, one such narration uh, before me, a quote from the early prophet is that, and I quote, whoever hires a worker should pay him his wages in full. You know, there isn't two ways about what Islam promotes. It's really in black and white. So for a, a certain part of the world to um, have this stance, or at least it's purported, or, um, you know, that um, it's only this region which, you know, has this 
um, this ability to inflict um, um, certain elements where you know the migrants aren't looked after would be incorrect because you know if we look closer to home and the various other parts of the world if this uh, act of not distributing the rights of various people um, has been practiced in the past and unfortunately is being practiced in this current um, age Imam Daniel, your final sort of words on um, the whole issue around, I guess, um, the uh, cruelty, the mistreatment of workers, and indeed not just workers, migrants uh, in general who are fleeing war-torn countries. Um, because at the end of the day, those people that are working, those migrants mm. that are work- working in those Gulf countries, mm. and perhaps the various other parts of the world, are therefore a better life, right? They, they've left their countries in search of opportunities. Mm. And those migrants which are crossing the English Channel are, in reality, um, mm. looking for hope, um, looking for further opportunities, and fleeing those those countries which have been subjected to the most uh, abhorrent and uh, cruel acts of violence. Mm, yeah, I think it's such a shame that um, we are living in such a society in such a day and age where uh, you know slavery shouldn't exist in any form, even in emotional, in a physical form or mental form. Um, you know, it gives such a pain to that. You know, it's, it's heart aching that how such thing in this modern world uh, could exist, and um, certainly, you know. Not we should not only discuss such things uh, to the extent that this happened and this happened. We should also discuss as we have discussed and given the solution that um, this could be the solution and this could not only be the, be the solution. This is the solution which Islam gives us that um, as we have given you know many examples of narrations uh, from the Holy Quran and uh, from the life of the Holy Prophet. Uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So I think you know. Finally, final remarks would be uh, from uh, from me is that you know we should you know tread on such a path which gives us the best solution. Uh, who has the best law uh, in solving in resolving those uh, problems? And certainly, we believe that Islam is the only religion, uh, is the only law. Uh, which you know gives us the best solution, uh, best uh, uh, best uh, resolve to solve the problems, and uh, certainly uh, uh, this happened like fourteen, fifteen hundred, hundred years ago. No, I think we are heading towards the end of the show, and uh, I would like to. Thank my co-presenters, the main presenter, Daniel Zia Sahib, uh, Imam Shazib Sahib. And uh, also, I would like to, you know, uh, thank to the whole team, the tech team, and uh, um, all the guests uh, who are with us and gave us the insight. Um, and... And also the producer of us, our producer, Simab Rahman Saiba, and researchers, Ruksana Nasid, and uh, all the tech team. So, uh, 
uh, that's the end of the show and we are hopefully to see you um, uh, in the next week Voice of Islam Radio.